Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 154, The Boys Are Back. This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Loop Knittery. You can find them at loopknittery.co.nz and Craftlet and Holiday Travel take you to London Bath and Wales in the fall of 2010. There are still a few spaces left, so get your reservations in now. You can find more information on the trip by going to craftlit.com and clicking on the link in the upper right-hand corner. And if you're new to Craftlit, go to craftlit.com and click on the library link at the top of the page, and you will find a listing of all of the previous episodes, as well as which episodes go with which book. You can also subscribe at iTunes or by using the new iPhone application. There is a link to the iPhone app from the craftlit.com website as well. Today is a very special day. Today I bring you an interview with Thomas Cathcart and Daniel Klein. When I had the opportunity to interview Tom Cathcart and Daniel Klein again for their next opus, Heidegger and a Hippo Walk Through Those Pearly Gates, Daniel came out with the most important question I've ever heard. Have you finished that scarf for me? I Sadly, no. Oh, boy, I'm getting cold. I know, and it's it's going to get colder still before uh, before anything like that happens because my sister's getting married. Oh, and you have to knit her wedding dress? Uh, I have to knit the wedding shawl, but you'll be happy to know she is marrying a nice German man who, uh-huh. who loves to talk philosophy. Oh, and they love. I mean, and they're they're the the uh, they're the Uber. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Heather, I, I hate to make Danny jealous, but I love the socks you sent me. <laughs> You're not. Supposed oh, to tell I knew about that. that behind my back. <laughs> Argyles, how did you know? <laughs> you always got the girls. And it didn't take long to get to the jokes. You know what happens when I wear knit socks? No. I have socks appeal. Is he always like this? <laughs> Regrettably, he is. <laughs> and then I got them talking a little bit about the writing biz. Well, here, I'm going to give you a little zoomp here. All right, I'm in ready. A Plato, Plato and a platypus, we wrote it on speculation, okay. as you wrote your novel, the whole deal. Right. Uh... Uh, two agents, uh, serially, uh, sent it to a total of 40 publishers oh, yeah. who all rejected it. Holy cow. They all said, this is very clever, but who the heck is going to buy a book about philosophy and jokes? <laughs> 41st took it for, you know, enough, uh, an advance that was enough to, uh, you know, take, take a streetcar. <laughs> a little oatmeal. Yeah. And two weeks later, it was tied for number three on the New York Times bestseller list. Holy cow. Boy, I bet those other 40 agents and our publishers were really feeling quite foolish. Yes, and they came up to our agent, the one who sold it, Julia, 
at the BEA, the Book Expo, yeah. and and they said, oh, I could kill myself for not taking that book. <laughs> and after a while, she'd say, go ahead. <laughs> Knock yourself out, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Have a good time. And then, irrepressibly, talk turned to vampires. It's about the zeitgeist, this, uh, you know, fascination with, um, with vampires. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the standard answer is something about teen sexuality and hickeys and bad boys, bad boy sex and that kind of thing. But uh, if you look at it from the point of view of Heidegger, one of our favorite philosophers. (laughs) Strangely enough. uh, Which we look at everything from because we don't know any better. (laughs) uh, It's just another uh, another death denial system. You know, you, you become eternal. Right. As uh, once you're once you've got, uh, been bitten, so to speak, and uh, and th- but the other thing, and this is what really seems to appeal to young people, is that not only are you immortal, but you're immortally young, forever young. Right. And that's what they really want because they don't want to look like me. <laughs> well, honestly, you two are are two of the most handsome gentlemen I have uh, ever had the opportunity uh, to speak to. I say that to all the fellows. No, no, well, only the ones the, who dress the... up in angel costumes on the backside. <laughs> 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 that limits the field quite a bit, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, but anyhow, just to finish the idea is that uh, we brought in another existentialist to comment on this, and that's Nietzsche, yeah. you know, who had this idea of eternal recurrence, you know, that you should live as though you're, you could repeat your life for an eternity. Uh, that's how much attention you should pay to it. And uh, Bella notices, I think, in the first book, that uh, not only are they are eternally young, but they are eternally in high school. And uh, and what uh, uh, the other great existentialist, Woody Allen, had to say about eternal recurrence, he says, great, that means I'll have to sit through the ice capades again. <laughs> <laughs> which we, which we, is only slightly less worse than sitting through high school again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> only slightly, if I remember high school correctly, and I try not to. And then, before you know it, we were back to Bella and Edward about whom Tom and Dan had just written an op-ed for the Boston Globe. I think people really don't get why a Byronic hero might not be the person you want to live the rest of your life with. Yeah, I'm trying to explain that to my daughter. (laughs) Send her over here. I'm trying to explain it to my wife. (laughs) (laughs) How's that going for you? (laughs) But she's still with you. Yeah. She's still listening, but what a yeah. she has. Yeah, maybe you ought to improve your poetry, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> and then all this romantic talk turned to the weather. This weather does not inspire deep philosophical thought. Oh, yes. No, we've noticed that. I mean, speaking of your, uh, what is it, your new son-in-law? No, who's who's marrying the German? Uh, my sister, yeah. My uh, brother-in-law. Your new, brother, your new brother-in-law. We discovered in, in uh, reading all the philosophers about death that most of them were German or Danish, like Kierkegaard, and that nobody who lived in the in the sunny Riviera wrote about death at all. <laughs> I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go water skiing. Who wants to talk about that? <laughs> Yeah, it's it's. I think it's hard to think about death when you're in Italy, just in general, unless, say, Mussolini's in charge of things, and then it yeah. would be a little easier. But I I have been reading my Heidegger and a Hippo walk through those pearly gates. Oh, you have! Oh, great! I have, and we when we talked during Plato, the the zeitgeist for Plato and Platypus, um, 
you guys were throwing around ideas for other things, but you're having a hard time coming up with the jokes, the the title joke. Uh-huh. Oh yes. So yes. when when did Heidegger and a hippo smack you on the head? Do you get this stuff just well, out of the blue? Yeah, actually, the title uh, just just came, you know, because it was in the line of our brand, so to speak. And then Danny wrote the joke, which is, at the, I don't know if you finished the book yet, but at the very end of, of uh, the book, there's the Heidegger and a hippo walk through the pearly gates joke, which, uh, you know, had to be tailor-made because we already had the title. Yeah, in order, to, in order to understand the joke, you have to understand that Heidegger is virtually impossible to understand. And, and friends of ours who can read him in German say that it's no better even in German. Oh, no! <laughs> And so, uh, it, so, you know, we had to come up with a joke. So, uh, so Heidegger and a hippo stroll up to the pearly gates, and St. Peter says, Listen, we've only got room for one more today, so whoever of the two of you gives me the best answer to the question, what is the meaning of life, gets to come in. And Heidegger says, To think being itself explicitly requires disregarding being to the ex- uh, extent that it is only grounded and interpreted in terms of beings and for beings as their ground, as in all metaphysics. <laughs> and before the hippo can grunt one word, St. Peter says, Today's your lucky day, hippo. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, really scary. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh, try reading quote. that stuff. That's yeah, we say that. quote from, uh, from Heidegger. Yeah. Oh, so seriously? Make that up. I was yeah. going to say, no, no. man, if you made that up, I was going to be really blown away. Oh, my no, God. No, 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 that, that's a direct oh, who quote. Who writes that stuff? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, that's we have good. a similar, we have a similar uh, thing. Uh, we use Woody Allen in, uh, in the book. Uh, we're talking about Paul Tillich's idea of the eternal now. Yes. Eternity, eternity isn't just an indefinite extension of of time. It's something altogether different. It's a it's a, a dimension of its own that cuts through the dimension of time. Very abstract, difficult idea to get your mind around. But uh, Woody Allen nails it. He says time is just nature's way of keeping everything from happening at once. <laughs> <laughs> Which is so true. Yeah. <laughs> It gets very messy if it all happens at the same time. <laughs> it does. You're trying to keep track. <laughs> well, and you know, this is perfect because what we're about to start reading, um, in fact, the, the next podcast is going to be chapter one of Flatland. Oh. Oh, I've never read oh. that. Is that. I have never read it either, and I always wanted to. Wow. Oh, well, you should listen to the podcast. Okay. I will. <laughs> <laughs> you and I'll take up knitting. <laughs> Even more better. <laughs> you know, I did. I did do something at camp Uh-oh. when I was a kid called spool knitting. Do you remember that? Yes. No. You had a little spool and you nailed four okay. little nails into it. Yep. And you made a an a, 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 a infinitely long lanyard kind of thing. I never knew what to do with it afterward. No, nobody does. <laughs> <laughs> It's because how you keep mother, kids occupied. You? But I got some good color combos. Well, that's more than most. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you were going to the head of the class with this <laughs> world. I was always, I was always an overachiever. <laughs> well, I actually wrote down. Till is it Tillich or Tillich? Tillich. Yep. I, I actually wrote him down because exactly because of that because the idea of. Um, in Flatland, you've got your two-dimensional plane, and the drama comes when a sphere crosses through that uh, plane. And, you know, they can only perceive things 
in a very right, obviously in two limited. Dimensions. So they see it as a circle, right? N they they see it as a line because they see it from the side. Um. Mm -hmm. So it's a line that starts as a point and then grows and then shrinks until it's a point again and then disappears. Oh right. And so the huh. the point that Abbott at one of the points aside from his satiric social commentary on Victorian society and its problems, um, one of his points, which I thought was pretty good for 1884 or something, was that a two-dimensional plane creature could no more understand three dimensions than we could understand the fourth dimension. If you're in quantum physics, they think there are even more than that, right? I, I, my head hurts when I start to go there. But yeah, yeah. that's what I think they're trying to say. Yeah. It makes me frightened. Yeah, well, all that stuff is interesting from a philosophical point of view, you know, with the, you know, the relation of our senses to objects. I mean, what if there wasn't such a thing as taste? Or let's say, let's say you had never tasted anything because you were deprived of, of, the, of those sense buds. And uh, there would be no way to describe the taste of chocolate uh, oh. to that person. Right. You'd, uh, you know, what would you say? Well, it's a little bit like a pine tree, but uh, I don't know. What would you say? I know. It's warm. Yeah. It's a warm, warm taste. Boy, I don't know. Mm. What would you do? Well, it's, it's like people, when um, my son just found out, he's nine, and he found out that people can be colorblind. And he found this to be extremely troubling. Mm. You know, how can yeah. you have a conversation with someone mm. if they're colorblind and they can't see things the way you see it <laughs> that, that yeah. started a whole lot of conversations <laughs> yeah it turns out that a lot of animals are colorblind like doggies i'd heard that how is it just that we know they don't have cones and rods or something something uh, yeah i don't know what it is but i guess it's not hard to test you know you get to see if you get a different reaction oh, from sure. something that would have the same intensity in black and white right yeah i think that's what it is yeah that's um, wild yeah it's hard. To, so that whole bull and red cape thing—is that just a load of bull? <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. The, do they really would would bulls in bullfights not see the red cape? Oh, now that's interesting. Probably oh, not. That's yeah. That's a yeah. Boy, you've just whipped apart an entire Hispanic uh, Spanish uh, culture. <laughs> Look how I do that without yeah. even trying. <laughs> I heard you were subversive. <laughs> I am. Um, I, I just re I just remembered a factoid from Psychology One, Ooh. which Danny and I both took. It was called Social Relations Ten, actually, but it was what most people call Psych One Hundred One. That's and, because uh, at Harvard they have to give everything a ridiculous name. It's <laughs> <laughs> part of the requirement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, they to do. differentiate themselves. But in any case, the factoid was that they did an experiment with some blind people who had their sight surgically uh, restored. Mm. And before they had the operation, they, sh they handed them a key and a pencil. Okay. And said, which one's the key? And they said correctly, this one's the key, and the other one's the pencil. Then, after the surgery, they held up the key and the pencil, and they said, which one is which? <sighs> they had no idea. Is that? I don't remember that. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. It was, yeah. But it does remind me of a joke. Good. <laughs> oh, good. There's a priest and a rabbi out playing golf, and there's the party ahead of them. 
is taking forever and they're hitting the balls all over the place. So they complained to the management. They said, tell this party ahead of us to hurry up. And the management says, you don't understand. We're a very liberal golf course and we allow this, this group of blind people to play. And, and the, the priest says, oh, I feel so guilty. I feel awful. And he, you know, he, he begs God for forgiveness. And the rabbi says, why don't they play at night? <laughs> The tribe is always practical. Yes, yes. <laughs> we can't help ourselves. Which led to discussing another part of their book. Biblical Hebrew understanding of... Oh, it was the soul body. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, a lot of people think that uh, the Judeo-Christian tradition has blessed this idea of body and soul, but taint so. You know, in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, there's no differentiation, you know. It's not, people don't have souls, they are souls. They don't have bodies, they are bodies. <laughs> and yeah. it's just yeah. one uh, organic uh, unit, you know. It isn't uh, the sort of Greek dualistic idea of uh, a soul residing in a body. And there was a Jewish guy who wrote, I'm all for your body and soul. <laughs> and his <laughs> rabbi told him that should be, I'm all for yours body and body. <laughs> <laughs> but no one would have understood... No, no, no. No, we need to believe in the soul. You know, the idea of soul interests me because of, uh, well, some time ago now, but this uh, was a governor of South Carolina or something who had been unfaithful with a Brazilian woman, was yes. it? Argentinian. Argentinian. Yes. And he said, he said, I had finally, I mean, he was, he was so uh, kind of hyper about the whole thing. And he said, I finally found my soulmate. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, isn't that sweet? And then my wife threw something at me. <laughs> <laughs> and thus proving to be a superior <laughs> philosophical thinker. Yeah, she was no Bella. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I... The idea of soul is interesting, of... though. The idea of soul being immortal while the rest of us uh, <laughs> turns to dust is very interesting. Well, and it was also interesting to read that... Um, certainly kind of new agey philosophy light in l-i-t-e versions of the understanding of reincarnation like hindu reincarnation are kind of missing the point it's not that you get yeah. to come back Ooh, yippee i get to come back it's dude you've got a long road to hoe before you get to enlightenment and then you finally get to leave so shut yeah. up and get to work you get to stop coming back. That's the prize. Yeah, that's the goal. Is nirva was it nirvana? nirvana. The idea of yeah. nothingness, absolute nothingness, is where it's at. <laughs> I once visited it. It's in South Jersey. <laughs> I drove by there. Yeah, I drove by there. <laughs> Nothing happening. I spent three weeks there one Sunday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard not to think that's what it would feel like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And perhaps unintentionally, talk of New Jersey led us back to talk of death. Or, or as we mentioned in the, in the book, when, when we talk about... Yeah, the book is partially serious, I should mention. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, what are people willing to die for? And as Tom points out, some people are will, uh, apparently will die for uh, Joan Rivers' uh, fingernail polish because it's to die for. <laughs> <laughs> so many things that to die for. Yes. It is interesting how, um, as our language 
it kind of goes through its Orwellian, what do you call it, contractions, where, yeah. you know, there are fewer and fewer words being used. Um, it does start to feel kind of like 1984, that the, yeah. the language is morphing and not necessarily in a particularly pleasant way. Yeah, maybe that's why Twitter has become so popular. Well, but you know what I've noticed watching Twitter feeds from authors? Is 140 characters really forces you to pick your words wisely. Yes. And I see better vocabulary coming across Twitter than I do in email. Oh, interesting. But I think that might be the feeds of the people who I'm watching, too. Yeah, maybe it's a particularly literate group. Remember uh, Ernest Hemingway's six-word novel? What was it? Um, For sale, baby shoes, never used. Oh. Isn't that great? Wow. Oh, boy. Yeah. That's sad. Leave it to Hemingway. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, well, that does kind of, in a perfectly Hemingway-ian kind of way, put it out there. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, The, um... The idea of people decrying the way language is uh, being denigrated or, you know, being uh, contracted, as you say, and uh, the old uses does bring up, uh, raise the hackles on me in some way. And that is like my brother's one of these. He says, how come people are saying because of instead of as a result of? You know, I don't know why he picks on these things. And, um, <laughs> who cares? But, you know. <laughs> But I say, uh, or no, they're saying as a result of instead of because of. And I said, what makes you think, you know, because of is the, is, is the better iteration? And then just for the heck of it, I looked it up. And sure enough, because of was a contraction of the expression being the cause of. Oh, my gosh. And well, of I said, it was. <gasps> yeah, how come, uh, you know, I said, uh, I wrote back to my brother, I said it. You know, how come you like the one that happened to be popular when you were a kid? That's what everybody wants language to be when they were a kid, not in 1734, you know? You know, it's interesting uh, to be 70 years old and to have lived long enough to see the meaning of a word change in your lifetime. Mm. Like when we were kids, sketchy used to be sort of vague and uh, lattice-like or something. And now it means sort of suspicious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and and I spent a, a, a while uh, correcting my daughter oh, until really? I turned out I was out of date. Oh, that's painful, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, getting out of date. Oh, First, I couldn't get dates, and now I'm out of date. What, <laughs> what happened to my life? I know. This happened. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, hitting the whole middle age thing has not been. Um, it has not been the biggest thrill of my life. I'm not. Yeah, we look back on Middle Ages, the golden years. So See, those, uh, you know. that, that actually makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. Because yeah. at least, you know, I can, I can yeah. aspire to that now. Yeah, about, about 70. 70 is the new 70. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I've, I've always been more lively than you, Tom, and I think that 70 is the new 69. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are dangerous. Yes, we are. We That's are. what it comes down to. I was just going to ask if we could tell a story. Of course. Okay. But this is a story that uh, we use in the book because we're talking about how now some scientists are looking at ways to keep us from ever dying at all. 
you know, like freezing and uh, cloning, the, the downloading your personality to a computer chip, yeah. all of these ways. But, but, but they're called bio. Oh, I just wanted to interject. They even have a name for these people. They're called bio immortalists. Oh, right. yeah. And, uh, and there are a bunch of them out there, I guess, that they're doing, you know, serious or what they think is serious science. But so far, the only thing they've been able to do is to sort of uh, 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 reiterate yourself at the age that you are. You right. know, so like Danny and I, if they stopped us from dying, we'd be 70 eternally. So they right. haven't found a, they haven't, <laughs> they haven't found a way to sort of rewind the aging clock. And so our story is the guy is walking along in the woods, and all of a sudden, a little frog says, Excuse me, old man. The old guy looks down. The frog says, uh, I'm really a princess. If you pick me up and kiss me, I become a princess and will make love all night long. And so the guy just bends over, picks up the frog, and sticks him in his pocket, and keeps walking. And the fox says, uh, excuse me, old man, I don't think you heard me. You have to kiss me. I become the princess, and then we make love all night long. And the old man says, well, I heard you, Froggy. It's just at my age, I'd rather have a talking frog. <laughs> <laughs> well, that now, you, now you know why, why middle age is preferable. <laughs> <laughs> That's it? and then we dragged ourselves back to discussing the book for you guys when you're working on a book like this which comes first the we know the philosophy or the we have a joke or do they kind of converge and collide into each other i think tom that in the first book and the second and the new book it's different don't you think Yes, I do. I think in the first book we often would have a joke and it would have a kind of a philosophical smell to it, and then we'd examine it, which means Tom would examine it, and uh, and say, oh, that points out what uh, Kant meant by the dingonsi. And uh, and that's the way we would do it, because we had a wide range in that book, in Plato and a Platypus yeah. Walk Into a Bar. We had this wide range. We wanted to give it an overview of all philosophy, all the different parts, ethics, epistemology, metaphysics, logic, the whole the whole business. In this new book, where we're, uh, the Heidegger and the Hippo walk through those pearly gates, we're concentrating on the big metaphysical question. What is the meaning of life? And uh, in order to ask that question, you have to ask, what does death mean? What is death? And what does it mean uh, for your life? So, you know, that's a very, it's both the biggest question, but it's much narrower than just an overview of philosophy. And, uh, and so we started with the philosophy first and then looked for the jokes. But as it happens, because death causes so much anxiety, almost as much as sex, uh, there are lots of jokes about it. You know, jokes follow anxiety. And uh, so we didn't have too much trouble finding some really good ones. No, the, yeah. the jokes in this are great. I'd like to tell one right now. Rock on. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you like my segue, Tom? <laughs> which, uh, and, and now I can't remember which one. Oh, it's, uh, this is about Schopenhauer's idea of the indifference to death. And it's about Maurice who's not feeling well, and so he goes to the doctor with his wife, Millie, 
uh, doctor gives Maurice a complete checkup, and then he calls Millie into the office alone, and he says, Millie, he says, I got some bad news. He says, Maurice is just on the brink of dying here, and because it's, cla it's caused by undue stress, but I've got a regime for you here that's going to save him. And he says, here's what you do. You take him home immediately, put him to bed, lots of pillows, nice quilts, give him a nice kiss, a nice massage, and then feed him, let him drift off to sleep. Next morning, give him a nice good morning kiss, serve him breakfast in bed again, and then uh, let him watch all the television that he wants, even if it interrupts your shows. And don't ask him, whatever you do, don't ask him to do any chores around the house, and don't argue with him even if he teases you, because that'll just make the stress worse. And a little later in the day, if he has any whim, you know what I'm talking about, you know, just satisfy it. Make Maurice happy and relaxed. So on the way home, Maurice says to Millie, he says, well, what did the doctor say? And Millie replies, he says, you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> so you just said earlier that the Plato and a Platypus went to number three, did you say, on the New York Times? Yep, in the nonfiction list, yep. Which is it, stupendous. It's fascinating, yeah, it's wonderful. It, and it's uh, then when it came out in paperback, it, it hit the uh, bestseller list again. And then it's in 20 languages. Wow. And, uh, and it became the bestseller in French, Catalan, Bulgarian, no. Hebrew, and one other. Possibly Dutch. I can't Do you remember the other one? No, I thought it was only those four. Yeah. So okay. it's a, you know, it's a, we, can, we can say and giggle at the same time that we have an international bestseller. It's true. It's, Little Tommy and Danny, off of the swings. Look at this. This is what happens when you turn 70. Yeah, if you live long enough, anything can happen. <laughs> well, this, this it's kind of like the monkeys in the cellar. You, get, you, you leave them there long enough and they'll write Hamlet. Yeah, you just keep typing. Yeah, you just keep typing. And pretty soon you've typed to be or not to be. Well, this makes me very happy, and I feel much better about my novel now. You should. <laughs> but yeah. this, this actually raises... a. A real question, because, of course, the people who listen to the podcast are just, as I like to tell them all the time, better than everyone else. Not that we brag. I'm sure they are. They're above average. They are above average. We can say privately among ourselves, because, of course, you're in this group now. Oh, thank God. See, you're, you're, God. you're in with our crowd. But I have of course, seen... I, I would never join a club that would have me as a member, but okay. <laughs> you, and, you and Woody. <laughs> yeah. But I've, I've seen them talking on message boards and things about the the difficulty of being um, not necessarily female and educated but having a better vocabulary than other people and getting jokes that other people don't get or making jokes that everybody just kind of looks at you and it's because... Are, are these other people men? Is this the implication I'm no, hearing here? No, it's no. just I no. think in a business place if you make a joke about Kierkegaard you should be yeah. prepared for some silence. Yeah. So you know what you know what happens to those people in the workplace? <laughs> They're not there nope. for long. Nobody gives them a Danish. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> oh, I wish I hadn't said it. <laughs> well, this is my question to you, because because you guys are kind of at the forefront of the humor and philosophy movement. <laughs> <laughs> That's a class of one. Two. There's two of you. Three genres. 
Um, do you sense from from your book tours and your interviews and and things like that? Do you have any sense of whether people are actually learning anything? Because I see you know, books so- like there's the philosophy of House, you know, the TV show House. Oh yeah. Because the ethical situations that the people get into are real ethical situations. Oh yeah, but, that's bioethics, and it's a big field right now. And yes, and the. And it, I mean, it also goes to you know Kohlberg's morality scale and the the test that he gave and stuff like that. But do you do you get any sense that the the fact that you guys hit the bestseller list, which I think is a step in the right direction, is having any impact on kind of the larger discourse that's going on in the world? Us, we've noticed that the world as a whole has gotten smarter. <laughs> Just because of you. <laughs> when you talk to people, do they seem to know more? Uh, no, but we, I, I don't think we caused anything, quite frankly. But, um, but I think we did catch the zeitgeist, because at the same time our book started to climb, uh, we saw that there are more uh, philosophy majors in college. No, it's really? On, yep, yep, it's on the upswing. That's good and, uh, and I don't know why that is. I think it's because, you know, the received wisdom of our leaders and our priests and rabbis and... Uh, political figures uh, uh, has been discredited in one way or another, yeah. and and so they say, "Oops, I think we'll go back to uh, you know some of the prime sources and ask, ask some of the prime questions." And that's philosophy. That's good news. Yeah, I think so. You asked whether we'd, we'd had any uh, impact on the world. Yeah. With our, our book. Well, I can give you one instance uh, as a result of our bestseller. I can give you one instance of right. an impact in the world. All right. My wife and I are eating better. <laughs> <laughs> well, darn it, that's good enough for me. <laughs> well, well, uh, we can tell you something that's kind of an interesting reaction we've had to the most recent book. Yeah. And that is, we were a little nervous that people who mm-hmm. had had a recent brush with death or people yeah. who had a diagnosis of of their own or people who were living with somebody who was actively dying yeah. uh, you know might actually find the book uh, too flippant or too uh, irreverent or whatever about death but the feedback that we've gotten so far from people who have heard us on radio and call in uh, has been just the opposite okay. people have said oh you guys are a breath of fresh air you know it's so I'm gonna give my father who's dying your book uh, very interesting that, that people uh, aren't finding it uh, at least the small sample that we know about uh, aren't finding it, uh, you know, uh, off-putting at all, but are kind of uh, yeah. welcoming, uh, taking a light-hearted look at death. Yeah, I I, I I have a theory about it too, and uh, and that is, I mean, I have a theory about everything, so it's new, but that that it's a taboo subject, death. Yeah. I mean, it's it is the ultimate taboo to talk about that we're only here for a short period of time. It's just the most anxiety-provoking thought there is. So people don't talk about it. And people really uh, don't think about it. Makes it worse. And the book, the book addresses it. And uh, so people read it and they say, gee, we're all in the same boat. Yeah. You know, the, the mortality boat. The fact that it's going over the waterfalls is not nice, but uh, we're in the same boat. There it is. And happily, this once again led us back to a joke. It's about this old grandfather, this old Zadie who's lying in bed in his deathbed. Yeah. And he sniffs and he smells his 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 wife's you know, old grandma's strudel from the kitchen. And he sends his granddaughter down to get some for him. And she comes back empty handed. 
And the old guy says, where's the strudel? And the little girl says, Grandma says it's for after. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the, the prime lessons of the existentialists, and that's why we've sent in our book about the existentialists. You know, if you don't face that, you don't get life. Yeah. you got to get death to get life. Yeah. There's one of the, you know, we use New Yorker cartoons in our books, and, and one of them has a, uh, a guy sitting at a desk, and there's the Grim Reaper standing in front of him with his sickle. And this guy is saying, you know, I work better with a deadline. <laughs> <laughs> like you and your novel. It we've is. Come full, we've come full circle. <laughs> Should I say the name of the book again? Please do. So everybody can rush out and buy a copy? Give, give us a bunch of different titles. Uh, give us your whole, your whole catalog. Well, our, our, the original book is called Plato and a Platypus Walk into a Bar. Understanding philosophy through jokes. And the new one, Tommy, is? Heidegger and a hippo walk through those pearly gates using philosophy and jokes to explore life, death, the afterlife, and everything in between. I think I had to edit almost an entire half hour of my giggling and snorting out of the audio just to make it tolerable. But you can tell these are two wonderful guys, and I have had the best time talking to them. I hope you all go out and buy their book, or books. In the meantime, we're going to get back to Flatland. Today we have section 10, or chapter 10, depending on which copy of the book you have. And if you recall, in the previous two chapters, 8 and 9, there was a lot of discussion about color and kind of sedition. And the interesting things that happen when the rabble gets control. And of course, by rabble, I really mean all of us. <laughs> because uh, I think, you know, I side with the masses. Anyway, um, a couple of things I wanted to bring to your attention. Um, a little bit of world history here. The first country, country, to give women the vote was New Zealand in 1893. Woo! And uh, that was followed by Australia in 1902, which I thought was interesting. And then, you know, everybody else kind of slowly rolled into line. It's interesting that in 1869 in Britain, some women were allowed to vote in municipal or local elections. And then um, Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughter Christabel, they were the... Um, the real forces behind the suffragette movement in Britain. Of course, um, Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton were doing the same thing here a little bit later. Um, in Britain, the House of Commons in 1917 allowed uh, women aged 30 or over to vote. And in 1928, the voting age was reduced to 21. So you figure Abbott's writing this in the 1880s. He's got a long way to go before he sees um, the right for women to vote in in Britain. I don't think he made it. Um, and as in Britain, uh, so went the states. Uh, men, uh, different men, were allowed to vote in elections far earlier than women were. Um, in 1832, the class of men allowed to vote was widened significantly, but there were no women allowed. Similarly, here in the States, um, 
African-American men were allowed to vote before women of any race were allowed to vote. And um, that actually created kind of a split between Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and um, Frederick Douglass, who they had been working with in kind of universal uh, suffrage together. So what you're going to hear in today's chapter is kind of how all of this color stuff gets used uh, politically. And I heard when I first listened to this chapter, um, kind of echoes of something that hadn't happened yet. If you remember the movie Gandhi, there's a horrible, horrible scene where um, I think, and I haven't seen it since the last time you know I saw it because I talked about it on the podcast um, three years ago. I think there are a bunch of Indians were brought into a soccer stadium or some kind of a, it was some kind of a meeting place that was walled or very difficult to get in. And it wasn't a soccer stadium. It was just a, a common area that was hard to get in and out of. I think it had one kind of main gateway in and um, a large, huge number of Indians were amassed there and the British came in with uh, massive artillery and just slaughtered everyone. Well, something similar happens in this chapter. I don't think I'm spoiling anything for you. I, I want you to approach this from a Brechtian standpoint. And what Brecht would do was, you know, he would name he would name his acts or his scenes in his plays when Alexander Ashkavili is shot. <laughs> you know, something that gives away the entire scene. And then what that does is it forces you to watch how that happens. And it's impressive because it doesn't change the dramatic nature of the situation at all. In, in many ways, I think it, it heightens it. Similarly to, um, to that, here, it turns out that the, the Gandhi era slaughter that I was thinking of had actually already kind of happened. In um, 1857, there was a enormous uh, slaughter again in India. Um, there was a whole uprising. It's called the Sepoy Mutiny. It happened in 1857. Um, it was just horrible. And um, this is all kind of the end of the British East India Company. And in fact, this incident, this um, horrible revolt that just went badly <laughs> for both sides, um, but, but much worse for the Indians. Um, this had been uh, one of the reasons why in 1858, the Government of India Act transferred power over India to the government of Queen Victoria. Um, that means they took it away from the East India Company. And in 1876, she took on the title of Empress of India, which I did not know. Victoria, she was moving all over the place. So in, in this chapter, and I'm just going to play you chapter or section 10 uh, for the night, and then sign off, um, you'll hear the repercussions of what, um, what began with the injection of color into the otherwise colorless world of Flatland, and, um, and the parallels that, that Abbott is drawing between his society and, and, uh, and the Flatland world. And um, it's rather pointed. As, as has all of his satire been thus far. So I hope you enjoy this chapter. I think it is really rather well done. Section 10 of the Suppression of the Chromatic Sedition 
the agitation for the Universal Colour Bill continued for three years, and up to the last moment of that period it seemed as though anarchy were destined to triumph. A whole army of polygons who turned out to fight as private soldiers was utterly annihilated by a superior force of isosceles triangles, the squares and pentagons meanwhile remaining neutral. Worse than all, some of the ablest circles fell a prey to conjugal fury. Infuriated by political animosity, the wives in many a noble household wearied their lords with prayers to give up their opposition to the colour bill, and some, finding their entreaties fruitless, fell on and slaughtered their innocent children and husbands, perishing themselves in the act of carnage. It is recorded that during that triennial agitation no less than twenty-three circles perished in domestic discord. Great indeed was the peril. It seemed as though the priests had no choice between submission and extermination, when suddenly the course of events was completely changed by one of those picturesque incidents which statesmen ought never to neglect, often to anticipate, and sometimes perhaps to originate, because of the absurdly disproportionate power with which they appeal to the sympathies of the populace. It happened that an isosceles of a low type, with a brain little if at all above four degrees, accidentally dabbling in the colours of some tradesman whose shop he had plundered, painted himself, or caused himself to be painted, for the story varies, with the twelve colours of a dodecahedron. Going into the market-place, he accosted in a feigned voice a maiden, the orphan daughter of a noble polygon, whose affection in former days he had sought in vain, and by a series of deceptions, aided on the one side by a string of lucky accidents too long to relate, and on the other by an almost inconceivable fatuity and neglect of ordinary precautions on the part of the relations of the bride, he succeeded in consummating the marriage. The unhappy girl committed suicide on discovering the fraud to which she had been subjected. When the news of this catastrophe spread from state to state, the minds of the women were violently agitated. Sympathy with the miserable victim, and anticipations of similar deceptions for themselves, their sisters and their daughters, made them now regard the colour bill in an entirely new aspect. Not a few openly avowed themselves converted to antagonism, the rest needed only a slight stimulus to make a similar avowal. Seizing this favourable opportunity, the circles hastily convened an extraordinary assembly of the states, and besides the usual guard of convicts, they secured the attendance of a large number of reactionary women. Amidst an unprecedented concourse, the chief circle of those days, by name Pantocyclus, arose to find himself hissed and hooted by a hundred and twenty thousand isosceles. But he secured silence by declaring that henceforth the circles would enter on a policy of concession. Yielding to the wishes of the majority, they would accept the colour bill. The uproar being at once converted to applause, he invited Chromatistes, the leader of the sedition, into the centre of the hall, to receive, in the name of his followers, the submission of the hierarchy. 
then followed a speech, a masterpiece of rhetoric, which occupied nearly a day in the delivery, and to which no summary can do justice. With a grave appearance of impartiality, he declared that as they were now finally committing themselves to reform or innovation, it was desirable that they should take one last view of the perimeter of the whole subject, its defects as well as its advantages. Gradually introducing the mention of the dangers to the tradesmen, the professional classes, and the gentlemen, he silenced the rising murmurs of the isosceles by reminding them that, in spite of all these defects, he was willing to accept the bill if it was approved by the majority. But it was manifest that all, except the isosceles, were moved by his words and were either neutral or averse to the bill. Turning now to the workmen, he asserted that their interests must not be neglected, and that if they intended to accept the colour bill, they ought at least to do so with a full view of the consequences. Many of them, he said, were on the point of being admitted to the class of the regular triangles. Others anticipated for their children a distinction they could not hope for themselves. That honourable ambition would now have to be sacrificed. With the universal adoption of colour, all distinctions would cease. Regularity would be confused with irregularity. Development would give place to retrogression. The workman would, in a few generations, be degraded to the level of the military or even the convict class. Political power would be in the hands of the greatest number, that is to say, the criminal classes, who were already more numerous than the workmen, and would soon outnumber all the other classes put together, when the usual compensative laws of nature were violated. A subdued murmur of assent ran through the ranks of the artisans, and Chromatistes, in alarm, attempted to step forward and address them but he found himself encompassed with guards and forced to remain silent, while the chief circle, in a few impassioned words, made a final appeal to the women, exclaiming that, if the colour bill passed, no marriage would henceforth be safe, no woman's honour secure. Fraud, deception, hypocrisy would pervade every household. Domestic bliss would share the fate of the constitution, and pass to speedy perdition. Sooner than this, he cried, come death. At these words, which were the preconcerted signal for action, the isosceles convicts fell on and transfixed the wretched chromatistes. The regular classes opening their ranks made way for a band of women who, under direction of the circles, moved back foremost, invisibly and unerringly, upon the unconscious soldiers. The artisans, imitating the example of their betters, also opened their ranks. Meantime, bands of convicts occupied every entrance with an impenetrable phalanx. The battle, or rather carnage, was of short duration. Under the skilful generalship of the circles, almost every woman's charge was fatal and very many extracted their sting uninjured, ready for a second slaughter. But no second blow was needed. 
the rabble of the isosceles did the rest of the business for themselves. Surprised, leaderless, attacked in front by invisible foes, and finding egress cut off by the convicts behind them, they at once, after their manner, lost all presence of mind, and raised the cry of treachery. This sealed their fate. Every isosceles now saw and felt a foe in every other. In half an hour not one of that vast multitude was living, and the fragments of seven score thousand of the criminal class, slain by one another's angles, attested the triumph of order. The circles delayed not to push their victory to the uttermost. The working men they spared but decimated. The militia of the equilaterals was at once called out, and every triangle suspected of irregularity on reasonable grounds was destroyed by court-martial, without the formality of exact measurement by the social board. The homes of the military and artisan classes were inspected in a course of visitations extending through upwards of a year. And during that period every town, village and hamlet was systematically purged of that excess of the lower orders which had been brought about by the neglect to pay the tribute of criminals to the schools and university, and by the violation of other natural laws of the constitution of flatland. Thus the balance of classes was again restored. Needless to say that henceforth the use of colour was abolished, and its possession prohibited. Even the utterance of any word denoting colour, except by the circles or by qualified scientific teachers, was punished by a severe penalty. Only at our university, in some of the very highest and most esoteric classes, which I myself have never been privileged to attend, it is understood that the sparing use of colour is still sanctioned, for the purpose of illustrating some of the deeper problems of mathematics. But of this I can only speak from hearsay. Elsewhere in Flatland colour is now non-existent. The art of making it is known to only one living person, the chief circle for the time being and by him it is handed down on his deathbed to none but his successor. One manufactory alone produces it, and, lest the secret should be betrayed, the workmen are annually consumed and fresh ones introduced. So great is the terror with which even now our aristocracy looks back to the far distant days of the agitation for the universal colour bill. End of section 10. Recording by Ruth Golding. Sad, no? <sighs> it's interesting because it sounds in many ways as though A Square, who's telling us the story, has kind of romanticized in some ways this whole section of their past history, the, the, the colorful days. And I think, you know, I think we all have that weakness of looking back and saying, oh, you know, things were much more simple in the 50s. But then if you watch Mad Men, you go, yeah, but they weren't all that great, were they? Or, you know, early 60s in Mad Men's case. So I don't know. I think, I think Abbott is doing some very, very clever things with this. And I know what's yet to come. And I'm really excited about watching him build to 
to this really amazing stuff. I'm so glad you guys are liking Flatland. I'm seeing the conversations on Ravelry and via email from you, and I'm just really glad we chose this book. It's a good way to start 2010. I hope you have a wonderful new year, a safe one and a happy one and a flu-free one, and I will talk to you in the next decade. Take care. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com or you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.